If you, uh, if you don't already have your Bibles open to, uh, to John 4, please do that. I, uh, I want us to be <clears throat> a people that are about God's Word. And there's several things in the text today that I'm going to ask you to look at with me as we go through it. So we are in a study in the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 4, as Elizabeth just read, verses 43 through 54. And to give you a heads up, I have titled this sermon, Why They, but in parentheses, and we... Do not treasure Christ above all things. And then by way of just kind of letting you know where we're going, a little bit of a roadmap, I'm going to talk about kind or cunning, and that's coming out of verses 4, 45, and 46. And then the second thing that I'm going to talk about is a supernatural seeing that gives birth to spiritual vision or faith, and that's in John 4, 48 through 53. There's an interesting part of our text this morning, and right out of the gate, I want to point it out. It's an apparent textual contradiction. So I want you to look at this contradiction with me and see if we can't make sense of it in my first point. But look with me at verse 44 and 45 of chapter 4. It says in verse 44, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And now here's the, here's the uh, conflict. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So it says... A prophet, Jesus is saying, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. But then the very next sentence says they welcomed him. To me, it's like, that doesn't sound like without honor. That kind of sounds like with honor. So put your finger on that. I'm going to come back to that in my first point. But before I even make the first point, so as that you don't read through your Bible without missing things, I want you to see in verse 43 something that I find personally very interesting. You may say, I don't see it, Clint. Why is that interesting? But look with me at verse 43. It says, after the two days, so he had stayed in Sakar with the woman at the well for two days. They asked him to stay because there was a lot of them who had come to faith. So he says, after the two days, he departed for Galilee. Now, what you probably don't know, because you didn't have a whole week to study this text, but I do, is that it was 49 miles from Sakar to where he was going in Galilee. 49 miles. Now, When we think about that in a car, we think, "Ah, I don't want to have to drive 49 miles. That's kind of a long trip. But this is walking. So we're talking about two or three days of walking that you could just kind of read right over in this text. And here's the thing about it. 
is the disciples are with Jesus. And if you could just go back or put yourself in their shoes, for two or three days, you're walking from Sakar up to Galilee. You know who you're walking with? You're walking with the God of the universe. You're walking with the one who spoke and the stars came and fell in place. You're walking with the king of kings, the lion of Judah, the prince of peace. What do you say? You know, it's like, hey, did you hear the one about, no, that wouldn't work. I mean, you know, it's got to be a little bit of an intimidating thing as you're walking with the God of the universe. But here's my point. The God of the universe came down and he walked with men on a dirty, dusty road for two to three days, 49 miles, and there's no telling what they talked about. But one thing it says to me is that we have a personal God. And that one day, don't just read this like that happened to them. One day, if you know him, I'd be willing to bet at some point in eternity, he's going to say to you, let's take a walk. And you're going to walk with your creator. How glorious is that? How wonderful is that? Time alone with the creator of the universe. But let's look at verse 44. Verse 44 says it like this, doesn't it? It says, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So he's going to Galilee. Nazareth is there. This is where he grew up. And the Galileans are welcoming him. And my question is, are they really welcoming him? Jesus has just said, so God, the one who uh, always speaks truth, says a prophet is without honor in his hometown. They welcome him. I have to believe that God is correct, and maybe they're kind of not. And here's where I'm going with this. Could it be that they are cunning and not really welcoming? And what I mean by that is, you know, cunning is a skill at achieving one's end by deceit. They saw, it says in there, and it's interesting that it said it that way, they saw the miracle at Cana. They saw that this guy that grew up with me turned water into wine. Now he's come back, and now they're smart enough to know, hey, I think we can get, we can, we can get an advantage here. And uh, why do I say that? I think because as human beings living in a fallen state, we have ways of using people. We're really good at it, actually. And uh, I think we learn it probably from the earliest day, how to use somebody for our good. Take, for example, um, I looked up on the internet, Tupelo, Mississippi. Who's from Tupelo, Mississippi? Anybody know? 
Elvis Presley. Do you think in Tupelo, Mississippi, they're trying to capitalize on the fact that Elvis is from Tupelo? You bet your bottom dollar they are. Why would they care that Elvis Presley is from this, I want to say, backwater, I shouldn't say, but I just did, didn't I? This small town called Tupelo, Mississippi. You know why they care? Because Elvis was somebody. And if Elvis is somebody, and I'm from Tupelo, Mississippi, well, maybe, just maybe I'm somebody. And so they take pride in Elvis being from Tupelo, Mississippi. The people in Caesarea, or excuse me, in Galilee, they were taking pride in Jesus being from where they were from. And they saw the miracle, and they thought, you know, we can probably capitalize on this. We take advantage of opportunities all the time, you, uh, especially this generation, more than maybe any other. We take photos if we happen to see a celebrity. My daughter told me the other day, 19 years old, you could imagine how ecstatic she was when she said, you know, I was at whatever the name of the restaurant, Upbeat or whatever it is, Salad Place on the west side, and I saw that girl in Stranger Things, and I was like, that's great. You know, it just didn't move me to see the girl in Stranger Things. But I could tell. She was really into it. I said, so did you get a picture? And she's like, no. But when we see a celebrity, often we go and ask for a photo. Matter of fact, if we're fortunate enough, if it's a U.S. president maybe, we for sure go and ask for a photo. But let me break the hard news to you. When that president goes home at night, and he's talking to his family and his close friends, you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't show them the photo with you. That's a reality. Now, that same president, if he gets a photo with someone that he esteems that might bring him some sort of social status, even that guy goes home and goes, look who I took a president, I mean, I took a photo with. You see, we know how to use people. We know how to use people. I had a guy call me on the phone the other day. I don't know him very well. He's a Baptist pastor in the Atlanta area. And this is what he said. He said, Clint, I was on the plane flying back from Los Angeles, and I thought of you. And right there, just, just like that, I thought, well, that's really kind. I felt kind of special. And he said, yeah, I was just thinking about you, and I prayed for you, and I prayed for your church. <clears throat> and he went on for two or three more minutes. And then he said, I want to mention something to you. I'm having this conference. And I'm wondering if you could come and bring a bunch of your people to my conference. And right at that moment, I went, ah, it ain't about me. This wasn't ever about me. This was about him. We know how to do that, don't we? We know how to do that. This is what is happening here with Jesus, when he comes to his hometown. And this is why Jesus says in verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus was saying, in other words, you don't believe in me. You just want what I can do for you. You don't really want me. You want what I can give you. And these people were religious Jewish people. And I think often it is the religious 
that just really want what Jesus can give us more than we really want Jesus himself. You see, what we want is for him to give us that perfect spouse and that great marriage. We want him to give us that position at work. We want him to give us financial comfort. We want him to give us social status. We want peace. We want prosperity. There's a whole prosperity gospel movement. That ain't about Jesus. That's about getting what you want from Jesus. That's what that's about. But Jesus says this to them through saying, you just want signs and wonders? This is what he said. I will not be your genie in a bottle. I will not be your lucky rabbit's foot. I am not the man upstairs. He is not a good luck charm in life to help us be successful in all our endeavors. He is not our physical miracle healer when I am the one diagnosed with a deadly cancer. But Jesus is my only hope in this life and in death. And Jesus is the only one who hears my soul at the deepest places and can offer me peace unending. Yeah, Jesus is the only one who can bring eternal salvation and value and significance to my little finite life. Jesus is the one who beckons me to come so he can explode my soul with overflowing joy and life abundant. He is that. Oh, yeah. He's that and a whole lot more. But why? Why can't we see Jesus for the treasure that he is? Why did Jesus have to say, all you really want are the signs and miracles? Even in Egypt, when they escape and they're in the wilderness and he's given them miracles every day through manna and all kinds of other ways, you know what the, the Israelites got addicted to? They didn't get addicted to Jesus or to God. They got addicted to miracles. And they started to grumble and complain when the miracle that they got, bread out of nowhere, wasn't what they wanted, steak and eggs. Do you see a parallel? It's almost like our vision of him and I, and I have this memory, is that painting hanging in my grandmother's foyer when I came in her door. You, 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 know, the, you know the one. It's the one with the Jesus, and he's got the halo over his head. When in reality, he's not that painting. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the King of of heaven and earth. And when you go outside on a dark night and you look up in the stars, I do this every blue moon and there's never a blue moon. I do this every now and then. And I look up or I even sometimes lay on my back on a clear night and look up at the stars on a starry night and I wonder in my soul, 
how massive is this universe? He is the one who spoke all of that into existence. Simply by speaking, he unleashed a universe of stars and galaxies. Just by speaking. People, places, plants, animals. And then, I can't help but look over there. When you hold a baby in your arms and you ponder the precious life that you're holding, and those of us who have been parents, and you smell that sweet baby smell. It is but an echo of the goodness of God. Only an echo. That is the God we serve. That is the God that we can know. What keeps us from seeing that God? Frankly, most often, it is sin. It is our own pride and self-dependence. It is sin in its form of selfishness and ego and narcissism. It's sin that blinds us and steals and ultimately kills. Could it be that sin is stopping you from seeing the echoes of the goodness and the majesty and the wonder and the beauty of God that at night when you watch that show that you know you probably shouldn't be watching or when you make that decision and you know there's a check on the Holy Spirit in your soul that you shouldn't be doing this, whatever that is, and you push through anyway, that you block the very goodness and sight of the true beauty of God himself. And you take on a counterfeit. Wasn't it Jeremiah that said in 2.19, my people have forsaken me and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that, hold, that won't hold water. God says, I'm the living water. When you seek me, you will find me. The third point, excuse me, it's actually the second point. It used to be my third point. I changed. <laughs> my second point is this. Supernatural seeing gives birth to spiritual vision. In John 4, 48 through 53, look at it again with me. Uh, look in your Bibles with me at that passage. In 48 through 53, it says this. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. As he was going, his servant met him and told him that his son was recovering. 
So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And get this, it says, And he himself believed in all his household. amazing to me. If my son were sick, it was a day's journey to find Jesus. And if I got to him, I would have said, come like he did. Come and heal my son. And what did, what did Jesus say? He said, y'all won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. But you see what the official did? And you know, they say that the official probably worked for King Herod, who had off the head of John the Baptist. And so the official doesn't argue. He says, come, you can heal him. And he says, no, go, your son is healed. Right then I would have been like, I've come a, a day's journey. Please go back with me. If you just lay your hands on him, I'm sure he'll be healed. But no, the faith of this official was, if Jesus said it, Jesus would do it. If Jesus said he is healed, then I'm going to believe he is healed. What faith? What faith? I think about the story of the 10 lepers. I'm asking the question, why can't we see the treasure that is him? Because to see Jesus for who he is, is to savor him. Because he is more marvelous and more wonderful than anything in this life. But they can't see it. They can't see it. So the 10 lepers come, and Jesus says, you're healed. Nine, go away. One falls at the feet of Jesus. And if you look in Luke uh, chapter 17, guess who the one that fell at Jesus' feet was? And, the, and Luke is careful, very careful to tell us it was a Samaritan. What does that mean to me? What that means to me is probably the others were Jewish. Why say he was a Samaritan? And what that means to me is it is the religious who are most blinded by their religion. Perhaps we want what he will give us not the giver himself. So dangerous. So dangerous. So, how does the official ever see it? How does he ever really see Jesus for who he is? And again, this is the last verse I want you to turn to. But look at Matthew 16 with me. Because to me, this is so powerful and so significant for how we see. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, going through verse 17. Just kind of put your finger right there. Verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, y'all, this is the question of all questions. This is the question. 
And Jesus is asking him. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or maybe one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And here it was with my father 32 years ago when I sat with him over lunch and I explained the gospel to him. And you know what my father told me? I don't know about all that, Clint. I believe some of the Bible, but I don't believe all of the Bible. And by the way, it's like, why would I go to church with all those people that are so hypocritical? I mean, they're at the bar with me on Friday and Saturday night. I know they are because they're over there talking about going to church and they're hammered and they're going home with women that aren't their wives. He said, why would I even bother? And this was my answer and it should be yours. But who do you say that he is, Dad? You still got to do business with the person of Jesus Christ. You don't have to do business with the church. But you do have to do business with who is Jesus Christ. And so, Simon Peter in verse 16 replied, You are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood are not, has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I want to pause right here, not simply because I want to take water, but I want you to hear something if you're a Christian. And I want you to hear it in the recesses of your soul. If you know God today, and I'm not under any assumption that everybody here does, but if you know God today, and you're sitting in front of me right now, I want to say to you what Jesus said to Peter. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. Only God. Only God. God can reveal that to you. And do you know what that means for you? It means you're special. It means God has picked you out. It means God has sent his Holy Spirit and regenerated your heart. It means God is doing a work in your life that will last for eternity. And one day, like, like the disciples, you may, you may make a two-mile walk with him. And ask him anything you please. Because only he can reveal that kind of truth to your soul. Only him. Only him. So, from our text, we know God must work. Only God can reveal that to you, Peter. God must work. But then the official in our text in John 4, he exercises faith. So God must work, but we must exercise faith. As soon as one of y'all figure that out, explain it to me, because I don't get that. There's mystery. There's mystery in the scriptures, and we must be at peace with that. Notice the official, though. When Jesus says, you got to do signs and wonders, he doesn't flinch. He doesn't flinch. He says, come, only you can heal him. 
But here's the thing. There was so much more at stake. We're reading the story and it's the son who's dying, right? (laughs) It isn't just the son and Jesus knows that. If the son were to die physically, oh, the pain, the grief, the misery, I'm sure would be unbearable. But what is at stake here is the healing of this father's soul. I'm talking about spiritual healing. I'm talking about salvation. And it says that when he believes, he becomes a follower of Christ, and then his whole household believes. It's not just him, but it's the whole household. So does your faith, I'm asking you, does your faith in Jesus matter to your family? Oh, you bet your life it does. Why? Why does your faith matter? Because you're great. I hope you're laughing because that is not true. You're not great and I'm not great. You know who's great? Our Savior. Our Savior is unbelievable. He is wonderful. He did all that he did in creation. And then he just comes down and walks with men and women. And he he cares enough to bring you into his soul. (laughs) It's amazing. Oh God, give us the faith of this official. Would you please? And here's another question. Could it be that this boy is sick so that this man and his family will personally experience the glory and majesty of God? Could that be? Could it be that you're sick? That somebody might experience the glory and the wonder and the truth that God is who he says he is? Could it be that one day, maybe now, I don't know, I'll have cancer and I'll be dying and I'll pray, God, take the cancer away. I don't want to die yet. And God won't do it. God will let me waste away until I'm gone. But if I hang on, By faith, believing what I saw in the light when it becomes really dark, won't I be making much of the glory of God? Perhaps way more than if He just miraculously heals me. Now, some of you may be sick, and I pray God would heal you. But more than that, I pray if He doesn't heal you, that you will not waste your sickness, but because of your sickness, you'll know God in such more intimate and deeper and personal ways. That's my prayer for for you when you're sick. Yes, I pray that he heals you. I'm human. I want you to be healed. I really do. I'm not just saying that. But more than that, I want your household to be saved. I want you to be saved. I want your neighbors to be saved. And God is using suffering in this life, just like this story, 
to do that. And you say, well, where else, you know, where else might you see this? Well, Psalms 119, 71. Look what the psalmist says. He says, it is good for me that I was afflicted. What? You got to, it's a typo, right? That can't be right. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes, that I might learn your ways, God. So here's my question. Who afflicted the boy? Who is afflicting you, perhaps? Could it be God himself? With a bigger purpose? With a grander scheme? With an eternal view? We just see this world. We're so micro-focused on what it is right here. God sees it all. He sees it all. But the beauty and the screen door that I run into and shut behind me on the storm that rages in life is Romans 8.28. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So when cancer comes calling or when brokenness and pain come calling, I am running in this screen door and I'm shutting it behind me and I'm saying, God, all things work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. Thank you. I'm not in this alone. The non-believer, all he has is, well, I guess it's fate. I guess this is the way it's supposed to be. No, no, God can take even the worst things and make them right and make them good and make them work for his people. Lamentations 3, 1 through 3, just in case you thought only the psalmist feels this way, it says, I am the man who has seen affliction. Under the rod of his wrath, he has driven and brought, brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand and again and again, the whole day long. And then we know the story of Job. He loses everything. But then in uh, the end of verse 1, this is what Job says. Then Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and he did what? He worshiped. He worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now that is a faith. That's a saving faith. That's not a faith that just wants to use you and get the signs and wonders and get my picture taken with Jesus. This, this is a faith that hangs on in the, in the dark of night. Job 13, 15, it says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet, and I like this part too, I will argue my ways to his face. God's okay with that. I'm going to argue my ways with you, God. Certainly, God would and does do things like this every day in thousands of people's 
lives and in a thousand different ways. Faith in this official, it moved from seeing signs to taking Jesus at his word to his saving faith to saving his whole family. In obeying his commands and trusting his promises, our faith is expressed. We do not dictate the terms of the relationship. We exist for him, not him for us. And then in, in Genesis thirty-two twenty-six, Jacob wrestles with God. It says, then he said, and this is the angel of God saying this, let me go for day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's wrestling with God, almost as if he's a man. Our faith is special to God. He is glorified by it. But it's not this simple faith of signs and wonders. It's a deeper faith that even if he chooses not to heal, I'm going to hang on to him. I will trust him. I will worship him in the darkness when I used to only could see the light. And I will know in my soul my Redeemer is good and even this is for my good. And finally, what we're seeing with this official is he's moving and they're moving from trying to use God to worship, from moving from trying to use God to worshiping God and allowing him to use you takes a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. To move from trying to use God to worshiping God, allow it takes a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, would you speak into our hearts the deep things that only you can do? Would you cause us to see you and to savor you for who you really are? I pray as we take this time of communion, you would be with us in a very real way. Speak to our hearts through this picture of remembering you. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.